Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. We assume the capitalist system is going to always remain. We assume democracy is always going to remain. And so we're happy with the status quo. But if you make it clear how much they're risking by not having a system that's more sensitive to kind of the bottom-up entrepreneurial spirit of minorities and others that that really feel disadvantaged, then I think um, what's going on, the anger in the streets and all that is a message that says you cannot be complacent. That was David Smick. David is the writer and director of the documentary Stars and Strife, which is available on all stars, stars with a Z uh, platforms. And Stars and Strife explores the culture of hate that has crippled America. The film includes voices from across the political spectrum. He talks to Republicans, he talks to Democrats, he talks to people who've advised presidents and decision makers on both sides of the aisle. He talks to a former white supremacist and someone who founded a Black Lives Matter chapter. It is a commentary on where we are right now and frankly, what we're gonna do about the dysfunctional state in which we find ourselves. Here I am with David. Welcome, David. Well, it's great to be with you. So if I had to describe your movie, I would say that Stars and Strife is about whether the idea of America can survive in the midst of the crazy, acrimonious, angry, and sometimes blatantly dishonest atmosphere in which we now live. Is that an fair description of your film? I think it is. I think it is. It's uh, People ask me, I kind of describe that. I also say, you know, united we stand, divided we fall is another uh, way. But I do think it says either we can take the status quo, and, and I don't know if our democracy can even survive, or we can try to figure out how we got here. And that's kind of part of the movie. Tell me why you made it. It's funny. I had this... I've. You know, I'm a Wall Street guy. <laughs> I started uh, my first client as a global strategic advisor was a guy named George Soros, who was a, a big player. And I have, but I have been in that lane for 35 years. But occasionally, I've I've done things outside of that lane. I wrote a best-selling book called "The World Is Curved," in which I I just had a hunch. I said, these bankers don't have a clue what's on their balance sheets. We're going to have a financial crisis. I wrote the book. The book came out just as the crisis hit in 2008. But I have the same kind of feeling this time our country was in trouble. And uh, But I thought, I think I will produce a movie. So I went to what I thought were eight top filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, and said, I'll pay for the film. Would you make this film? You can make it any way you want. As long as it's honest, it doesn't have cheap shots, and you've tried to talk about how we got to where we are and where we're going. And everybody turned me down. They said, films about ideas uh, don't, don't work. And I said, what about an inconvenient truth? Oh, well, that was an exception. So I, um, I gave up on the project temporarily. And then friends said, well, why don't you just do it yourself? And so I, they said, you've written best-selling books. You have a sense of how to tell a story. And so so I went ahead, and the first guy I talked to, by the way, was um, I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Baltimore. It was another guy who 
who uh, grew up in a similar neighborhood in Baltimore, the Academy Award-winning director, Barry Levinson. And uh, I told him what I was doing. And he, I said, well, maybe I should just do a short. And he said, I tell you what, make this a feature film. This is going to be important, and I'll help you along the way. I'll advise you. So he's become our executive producer, which so it's kind of the whole thing is bizarre and improbable. A complete unknown does a film that is executive produced by one of the Hollywood icons. So it's kind of a mismatch, but it's been interesting. Your film talks about partisanship and partisanship as part of the reason why we've become a bit dysfunctional as a country. Wouldn't you say, however, that we've always been a bit partisan? Partisanship is as American as apple pie, don't you think? I agree. I think uh, Rahm Emanuel, who, who uh, I interviewed him when he was just leaving as mayor of Chicago, but who had been Barack Obama's chief of staff. Uh, man, the way he put it, he said, we've always been partisan, but we've never been this dysfunctional. In other words, usually I look at the history of the Congress and usually people, in the end, if it's a serious enough issue, they come together and they solve it. And I'm not seeing that happen at all. And I think, I think it's really a problem. Like it or not, we have a system that requires compromise. And in order to have compromise, you have to have empathy. And that's really a big part of the film. We're in a situation now where there's almost like a, a hate epidemic in addition to COVID-19. And the hate epidemic, people are getting... It's like a drug. They're getting a dopamine fix. Their brains are, are lighting up at the ability to strike out. And I looked at this and I thought, this is not a healthy situation. I mean, we have to have empathy for the other side. And the ability to understand the fears and the dreams of the other side, and then you have to be willing to give up things and exchange to move the country forward. And so I remember asking James Baker, who had been um, Secretary of State and White House Chief of Staff, but he said, I said, would you appear in this film? And he said, sure. He said, why do you want me there? I said, well, I remember in 1983, which is ancient history, the whole Social Security system was falling apart. And I said, you brought together two very partisan guys who were leaders, uh, Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, the head of the Democratic Party, and Ronald Reagan, both Irishmen, both very stubborn, both very ideological and very partisan. How did you bring them together to save the Social Security system? Because we're going to have to do that again. And then I asked um, Leon Panetta, who had been President Obama's defense secretary, how did you, throughout your career, achieve these this ability to bring people together and uh, and solve these these uh, problems and I so that was kind of part of the uh, my mission to kind of say look this is how the system works it doesn't work you know there's this kind of illusion that um, I call it the partisan illusion each side is telling their side you know what we're going to win big and we're going to control it forever. But in the last 50 years, that never happens. I mean, the, we've had 14 presidents, half Republican, half Democrat. We've had um, the Senate switches back and forth every four to six years. Why it happens, I don't know. I guess the public just doesn't trust either party. But you, say, you see the same thing in, uh, in Congress. Uh, 
Trump, uh, Obama, and Bill Clinton all came into office controlling both houses of Congress. Two years later, divided government. The only reason George W. Bush controlled the Congress after two years was because he was in the middle of 9-11 and the country obviously didn't didn't want to change horses, but there is, we have to come together and we've got to eliminate the hate. And that, that's one reason I'm looking at this. I looked at this film as beyond Trump. This is but not how are a, we going to do that? Is, I appreciate what you say, because we do have to look past whoever our particular political opponents are of the moment. But I think it would be nice, uh, perhaps, to contemplate this post-partisan world, but it also strikes me that some partisanship is necessary. I mean, take, for instance, our first civil war, the one where we actually came to blows with one another. That was a very partisan conflict when we tried to compromise by suggesting that African Americans uh, would only be counted as three-fifths a person. First off, that's an evil compromise. Uh, There are some things, frankly, that I don't think we should compromise. And secondly, that compromise didn't even work. So perhaps the issue is that we need to do a better job of drawing lines about how it is we're going to fight and what are the things over which we're going to fight. Some partisanship is okay. I mean, you'd agree with me, right? Some partisanship we need. We can't compromise everything. No. Yeah, you can't compromise your value structure. You can't compromise the evil people with evil. But I do think you, I think the the answer to your question, in my view, is that you have to understand where the division is coming from, where the hate is coming from. And I think I try to do that in the film. You have had, I'll just say, part of it is economic, part of it is social. But you've had, since in the last 30 years, a phenomenal development, which is the, the world became globalized. And without getting into all the details, what that meant is that if you were in the stock market, it has been an incredible party. At 30 years of very low interest rates, which is terrific for stocks, the problem is half the country doesn't own stocks. That's a built-in sense of humiliation. It's a sense of, for half the country, there was a party I wasn't invited. I feel humiliated. And what happens when people feel humiliated? It eventually turns to anger. And then the anger turns to hate. So I think if you understand that, that neither party really did anything to bring half the country that didn't own stocks to let them ride the financial wave. It's pretty amazing to me. Now, Cory Booker, who ran in the Democratic primaries, proposed baby bonds as a way of uh, bringing people into the capitalist system. I had proposed something. I wrote a bunch of op-eds on, on the concept of giving every child at birth up to a certain income level a $10,000 loan in which that loan would automatically go into a stock index fund. And I tell you, $10,000 invested over 60 years with the interest payment due after 60 years would be worth a billion dollars. And my argument was, let these kids experience the same miracle of compounding that made you know, Warren Buffett so rich, except in their case, 
they're introduced to a system that half the country is benefiting from, but half isn't. You cannot have a system of huge stock gains and at the same time flat to negative wage gains. I mean, over decades. And we sit around and say, I wonder why people are so angry. I wonder why there's such partisanship. Well, a lot of it has to do with we just haven't opened our eyes to these effects that came across in a lot of ways because the world became globalized and that led to a very, very low interest rate in the U.S. The other thing we didn't understand, I don't want to get too too much, the financial crisis of 10 years ago, 2008, 12 years ago, really had an effect on, on young people. To, they began to believe there was this kind of corrupt fat cat crowd, and they were right. And so I think if we understand that the the results of the financial crisis, very simple. The economy became rigid. And we not only experienced a crisis of income inequality, they, we experienced a crisis of opportunity inequality. And as we say in the, I say in the film that, you know, 30 years ago, if you were born in the bottom 25% of the, the economy, you had about a 25% chance of making it to the top. If you worked hard, studied hard, like somebody like yourself, boom, you're at the top. You know, today you have a 5% chance. It used to be 25, now 5%. Why? Because the economy is rigid and there aren't enough startups. And I make an argument that startups are the great equalizer. Women are transforming American business today. They're starting up firms at twice the rate of men. Immigrants are responsible for 25% of uh, all startups, which is amazing. But the problem is the African-American community has really been denied access to this whole startup phenomenon. And part of it is it is much tougher to get seed capital, to get startup capital, if you're black in America than if you're white. And there are, there are examples of, of African-Americans having to bring in the white guy as window dressing to the venture capitalists to get the money. But I, I think if we understood that there is a fundamental feeling of that from, uh, by half the country that the American dream is slipping away, then we would understand why there's such frustration and why there's, there's this anger and, uh, and a lot of it is turned to hate. How can we begin to address that? What's your idea for creating more opportunity, for instance, so that there's less frustration and anger generated by that economic rigidity? How do we improve the economy in a way that helps people at the bottom? Right now, the economy, particularly in the last 15 years, has become very much top-down, and it's very much a corporate uh, uh, economy that uh, where large corporations and they have incredible uh, political power now because of their fundraising prowess. Um, they control uh, the patent system. They have huge control over the tax and the uh, and the regulatory system, and it's all to the disadvantage of the upstarts, the people at the bottom. And I mean, spend time in Washington, and you can see how it is such a top-down culture. It's very, very tough to uh, to have these these upshoots that that it's tough for them to survive. And I think if we change the culture in Washington to say it is a very much a small business culture, and we provide financing, we've got problems here. Our Wall Street centered economy isn't perfect, 
but would you agree that it provides more opportunity to people than might be the case of working class folks in, say, a European or some country in some other part of the world? Am I right about that? Absolutely. I spend a lot of time in my day job in Europe and in Asia. Uh, European is they're almost brain dead when it comes to entrepreneurial initiative. They're very much a big bank centered economy in which it's very elitist. Um, I've had I have a company I started and I have I hear often from European friends and they say, you know, I couldn't I couldn't do what you do in Europe. They've set up too many barriers. And yeah, even buying a home, you can't do it. Same thing in Japan, by the way. If you go to Japan, huge amounts of, uh, of young people that is in their 20s and early 30s living with their parents, they can't afford to buy a home. And the financial system doesn't allow it, as you say. So no, this we have something very, very unique in this country. We have this, call it what you want, the American dream or whatever. And it, But it is, it's a system, as I point out in the film, where if you had an idea and you have the energy, there's no country that would embrace you with that idea in the United States. I mean, and that goes back for 150 years. There's something about our culture. Maybe it's because we're, as um, someone said in the film, we're all a bunch of mutts who came over from somewhere else. And, but we take risks. We dream big. And uh, if we lose that, kind of precious thing of that entrepreneurial spirit because we have allowed a cult, the culture in Washington to be bought off, then I think that's a real shame. I am amazed how many people um, that I run, to, run into in D.C. who just, when I talk about these things, they almost seem oblivious to it. Like, what are you talking about? I said, well, look, a, a guy who wants to start up a firm doesn't First thing he does isn't, or she does isn't, to go out and hire a lobbyist. So I said they're not in a position of. Uh, uh, the, they need to be protected. They need to be that that hot house effect for a while. And there needs to be, frankly, there needs to be. I really do believe capital provided for African American and other minorities to have a shot at, um, because this notion it's a very subtle thing. I am told by friends of mine, that you go to the risk capital community and it is very racial. They do not, I mean, there's, it, you need to bring in a white person and that's really unacceptable. What are we going to do to fix that? I mean, you know, your film really goes to the heart of Americanism. And, you know, it's funny, I was going to ask you, what did you think made America special? And you just told me it's this opportunity and the ability to take risk and to get some reward from your risk. Everybody doesn't have the same access to uh, beneficial risks. So how do we fix that? You say make capital available to people. How do you do that? Is it a government program? Is it you and your friends saying that we need to realize that we've got to open up channels to other people? What's the path? A big part of this is communications. One reason I did the film is you have the bankers all talking. You have the financial system talking. And, and they're saying, look what's going on in the economy today. We assume the capitalist system is going to always remain, and we assume democracy is always going to remain. 
And so we are, we're happy with the status quo. But if you, if you make it clear how much they're risking by not having a system that's more sensitive to kind of the bottom-up entrepreneurial spirit of minorities and others that, that really feel disadvantaged, then I, I think if you lay that out to them, you look at a guy like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, he's starting to echo these thoughts that, you know, we think we can survive uh, because everybody we talk to is happy in our, in our income and in, in our elite status, uh, and yet that we may not be able to survive. So in a lot of ways, what's going on, the anger in the streets and all that is a message that says you cannot be complacent. The, we no, I don't run into a lot of people that say, gee, I want to become Argentina. I want to become socialist. But I do run into people that would like to say, that think there is a ruthlessness to the capitalist model just in the last 10 or 15 years that is really unacceptable. And, and I know something, if you go back and read Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, there was a strong moral element to capitalism in his view. This was not get yours, nobody else gets theirs. It was almost like a good shepherd model to the whole thing, which is, you know, capitalist system of competition is just a very useful way of organizing an economy and having it prosper. But, you know, you can move ahead that way, but you, you cannot leave people behind. And I think we've lost that. I mean, it's, uh, we, have, we, have, uh, we have this kind of ruthlessness on the one side of a capitalist mindset. On the other side, we have a, uh, a mentality that's completely oblivious to, this, to the whole startup culture and the whole, that whole small business culture and the notion of being able to you know, grab the American dream and, and run with it. So it also strikes me that it's 2020. And you would think that we all would have learned some lessons by now. We've lived a lot of history up to this point. And that history, I think, has taught us that on the one hand, a completely hands-off approach by government doesn't work. I mean, look what was happening to our food supply in the early part of the 20th century, where you had uh, manufacturers saying they were selling butter when instead it was deodorized lard or, you know, any other kind of disgusting thing that would turn my stomach to think about. And on the other hand, uh, we've also learned that there are some problems that government can't fix, and certainly that government can't fix on its own, and that we are often best served by an approach that kind of blends the best of both worlds. But it seems that no one pays attention to those historical lessons. How do we get people to pay better attention to some of the lessons that we've already learned? It's funny you say that, because I, I interviewed the... the um... You know, Maryland's a very democratic state. I interviewed the Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. And what I remember him saying was this. He said, you know, the average person doesn't care about any of this stuff going on, this, the, these sides screaming at each other, because they're so busy taking care of the kids and worrying about a sick parent or uh, an, another relative who's uh, lost a job and, and, you, and, you know, and they... The last thing in the world they want to hear is some kind of a partisan fight back and forth. And uh, with the anger, their, their lives are just too busy at this point. I think the average person, I think it's about 80% of the country, is exhausted. 
They're exhausted by the hate, exhausted by the division. They just want to see their leaders solve their problems. They're saying, come together, get us a healthcare system that doesn't bankrupt us, but but doesn't leave large sections of the country uncovered. I mean, they're ready for solutions. You say, what are the what's what's one of the really important things we could have done years ago, five, ten years ago, that would have made a big difference for the economy, particularly for the, for upstarts in the economy. For the we could have had a huge infrastructure plan. Now, ask me why the parties couldn't come together for an infrastructure plan for a country where the infrastructure is rotting. I mean, we should have broadband in every home. I mean, that's, a, that's an infrastructure I- issue. We should have protections against cyber, now against biological warfare that, you know, we've now, it's very clear our economy can be destabilized. We can be destabilized if we, if we don't have a, um, an infrastructure that protects us in the future. We certainly have roads, bridges falling apart. It just goes on and on that, that um, why we didn't come together as a country and say, let's fix this system. We have the money, but we didn't. We did a little piecemeal here or there, and we didn't. But that, people say, what's the most important thing you can do for small business startups? Improve the infrastructure. I mean, really improve it in a way so that um, you have access, particularly on the tech side, to, to uh, uh, you don't have to be a large company to, to gain access. So I'm kind of looking at this and saying, okay, we've talked about half of the problem, but the other half of the problem is social. And I think um, there, there is a uh, part of it is we're, we're living in a culture that's heavily influenced by the internet and by the social media companies. And that has had an effect on media. I talked to reporter friends of mine that I've known for years, and they, uh, uh, one of them is in, the, is in the film, David Ignatius from the Washington Post. And he said, you know, I have the advantage. I'm, I've been here for a long time. He writes, the, he's their lead foreign policy guy. He writes a column that's a very powerful guy and, he's, and all the rest. But he said, you know, nobody comes to me and says, how many clicks did you get on social media for, for a column? But I'm the exception. Every other reporter who went down, down the line, the junior reporters, if you don't get the clicks, you don't get the ad dollars, you hear from your editors. And how do you get the clicks? You write the extremes. You either write extreme right, extreme left, and you write hate. You don't write that, you know, both sides got together today and they solved the problem. That doesn't get you the clicks. It gets you no attention in social media. And I think if you, you know, it's funny, there's a, there's a documentary out on, uh, on Netflix on this. It's excellent. And it repeats some of the stuff in, in my film. My film is much broader in terms of looking at the problem, but they take the social media aspect and we, we say the same thing. We are losing our country. And we are we don't really know what a fact is anymore. Is it too late then? I mean, because I again, yeah, I mean that is it the cat is out of the bag. The algorithms have been developed. 
The social media infrastructure is there. It has been commercialized. It's institutionalized. It's got its own infrastructure. Speaking of infrastructure, there's a better social media algorithm infrastructure for pitting us against one another than there is for getting us back and forth to work every day. But it's there. So tell me, David, you made this great movie. Is it too late? I don't think so. I think, first of all, the social media companies, Google and Facebook in particular, they are editing for content now. used to be, oh, we're just a bulletin board. We're not a news outlet. They're editing for content. They should be under the same libel laws as the New York Times. Really? I think so. The alternative is the status quo. I'm talking to David Smick. He is the writer and director of the documentary Stars and Strife. It is available on Stars, Stars with a Z. You can see it on demand. You can see it on all Stars platforms. And the documentary explores America's dysfunction. And one of the things that David and I talk about in this part of the conversation is what he thinks sustains that dysfunction, what's behind it and what we can do to try to minimize it. We get into, in my film, into the dark money aspects of it. I mean, when you, when you watch the film, as you've done twice, didn't you, didn't you have this feeling when, you, when we're talking about dark money is, what in the world is Washington doing? Incredible. Why would they allow this? It's incredible. Why wouldn't somebody just have a bill, everybody agrees, it passes almost unanimously except a few cranks. I mean, it's mind-boggling why we would allow dark money in this, this, and with no accountability, no fact base, nothing. You know, it's just look. I would, I would certainly put the whole notion of ending, ending uh, all political advertising on the on the table and see what the response is. But I do know this: that if you, if you, uh, at minimum, in addition to uh, uh, you you have to say the algorithms that say to a conservative, we are sending you only stories and information that confirms your views and says to a liberal or a progressive, we only send you information that, that confirms your views. So you never hear the other side. So the whole notion of compromise seems foreign because you say, I've never heard any of the views. You know, there's, I, I pointed out in this, um, in the film, you know, the first step back, which is, you know, for your viewers, you know, in the, back in the 90s, they, uh, Congress passed a, uh, a legislation that turned out to be a, a horror show. It, it, it turned out that large segments of young black pop, of the young black male population were in jail. In some cases, you know, a, a kid sold two joints and at 17, he's He's 50-year sentence in jail. I mean, it's just absurd. And uh, and you ask yourself, why did it take so long to reform that? Both parties came together. Trump takes credit for it, but that's not true. They were working on this for the last couple of years. They came together and they changed the system. And in the movie, uh, you know, the, the, somebody calls it the Christmas miracle because it happened around Christmas. And you ask yourself, why did it take so long? It's because... There's not a lot of information flow between those both sides. Here you had finally, as one of the Republican senators said after the bill passed, he said, you know, 
the bill was actually better because people like me got to sit down with people on the other side and realize that they actually had better ideas in some of the areas than I had. And I was really struck by that. Um, the only thing I said is, why just on this bill? Why, on, why not on all the problems the country has to confront? And I, I really do believe that. It's just a matter of, but anyway, I think part of it is social media. You don't hear the other side. You don't, there's, you only hear the negative and you only hear these stories that confirm everything you thought you believed and yet, and confirms it in a way that pushes it to the extreme. And uh, I would also think, you know, we do, we have a whole section on this in this film. We need the political reforms. We need to look seriously at, do we really want to have partisan primaries? So you get elected to the Congress as a House member or a senator, and you're excited because there's so many issues you want to vote on. And you say, oh, look, there's some compromise solutions. They make sense. And theoretically, there is two-thirds of the Congress is in favor. And then you say, why don't they pass? Because these people say to themselves, my campaign manager tells me if I vote for that, I'm going to have some far left, if you're a Democrat, or some far right primary competition that's going to come in and is going to beat me in the primary. If you are voting in the Democratic primary, the candidate who is furthest to the left will do better in your primary, of course, than he or she will in the general. Yeah. Same in the Republican primary. You're, the candidate on the far right will do better. However, I have a hard time these days figuring out what the middle is. So if you look at the spate of political issues that we are debating right now, today, yeah. in the middle of a pandemic, a couple of months, barely, before an election, they don't necessarily seem to be issues where you can find the happy center. And I'm not suggesting or giving short shrift to the fight for Social Security reform or any of the other bipartisan efforts that have happened throughout the years. But right now, people are debating questions like, oh, are Black people more dangerous? And is it okay to shoot them in a way that we don't shoot white folks who are carrying guns and starting race wars? So the questions that are happening now strike me as less amenable to that happy medium. How do you compromise in this kind of environment? But I am optimistic. If you had, let's say we get beyond the election. If you had, you got both parties together and you said, we need police reforms. You know, I've seen these polls. African-American communities aren't saying eliminate the cops. No, they're not. They say get the bad cops. Some of them are veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they've been in situations where they distrust everybody because they go into a village and, you know, who knows who's going to shoot. So they have that mentality, and some of them have a strong racial element. But, you know, obviously the good cops, the normal ones, they feel if they stand up, you know, they get a target on their back. And the system, it's a culture. Imagine that if after the election, both parties came together and called a major conference, a major summit. I don't know who's going to be president, but a major summit 
and the some, but it, it didn't involve the White House as much as it did leaders in Congress. And they said, we want to pass this legislation, and it's no more of this window dressing stuff, this, this particular legislation to protect the good cop and to protect the system, and, and also to make it very clear to the unions that you cannot defend bad cops. You have to, it should be the reverse. You should defend the, the, the ones that are, um, are doing the right thing and are, and are notifying the system of a bad cop. But I'm told the legislation, it's just a matter of bringing everyone together. There's so much distrust. Anyway, I'm an optimist. I think if you brought together um, leadership of both parties, particularly if you did it after the election, so partnership's all gone, you then have an honest discussion. Nobody wants to have a continuation of what's going on where, where you have this um, both sides so distrustful on the streets. And, uh, and then the losers are the African-American community, these families that are sitting in their homes wondering if somebody, you know, kicked my door down, who would I call? The cops may not come. Or there may be the wrong cop who comes, you know, all that. I mean, it needs to be resolved. Who are the moderates today? You know, in your movie, one of the great points you make is that ours is a political and social conversation that is dictated by the people at the far ends of either side Mm -hmm. who are loud and get a lot of likes. I think, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but... As I saw your film, it seems that you posit that the new silent majority is this 60% of folks somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Who are they and what do they believe? I think the common sense middle. I call it 65, 70% of the country that says, you know, we want just common sense solutions. I think that there are some of the younger members of Congress they're part of the social media crowd, so their whole their whole political campaign, both sides, right, and left, is all geared toward the extreme because that's how they survive. But I think in the middle, there are the vast majority of members of Congress who say, I have to contend with that because they'll run against me. But if you told me that you were there was a movement to change the conditions so that wouldn't be the case and that we could actually you know, come to Congress and get things done from that middle perspective, I think there'd be an overwhelming, not 100%, but I think two-thirds of the Congress would respond. But we have to give them space to do that. Like, they've got to feel as if they have the political space and the leverage to do that. The people who are in the middle tend to be going to work and taking care of business every day and spending less time on social media doing likes and unliking and hating and posting stuff. So what's your advice for engaging that part of the middle? And when I say middle, I don't mean the middle in terms of, is everybody entitled to their rights? I mean, that's a foundational value. But assuming that, there are a whole bunch of people who on all kinds of issues that are not sexy, that are not a part of the culture war um, debates we're having, And they're important issues, but there are a lot of folks in the center who just don't feel safe enough to speak. How do we create that space? Yeah, I I say in the film, part of it is you change the culture where 
you know, and a film was the first step. But I do think, I always think of the um, of the first lady, I think it was Nancy Reagan, who was, you know, just do it. It was kind of an exercise to just do it. But I, it was clever in that if you make it very clear that haters in politics should be voted down, not up. I think if you began a camp, a national campaign, stamp out hate, stamp out hate in Congress, I think people will go, whoa, really? I'm for that. Because look what it's gotten. Look what the hate has gotten you. I mean, you change, I think the culture would change very quickly if you said, if, if people actually had some kind of leadership model. You talk about some really difficult things that happened to you in the course of growing up. And I, I, I think that they are instructive for people who are trying to figure out mm-hmm. how to make their way through a really complicated and tough <laughs> and a tough field. So what's your advice? When I started the film, I, I came up with a, that I had a professional narrator. And then we showed it to about 55 directors and producers in Hollywood. And, you know, they all came out one night and, you know, and they, uh, they liked the film. And, but then they said one thing, get rid of the narrator. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. Well, then who should be the narrator? And they said, me. And you should talk about yourself personally. I was a little reluctant, like, oh, sounds like a vanity thing. But I, I went ahead and uh, I said, okay, I'll try. Yeah, I grew up in a working class section of Baltimore. I remember just worrying about finances all the time, worrying about whether my parents would make it. And I uh, don't run into a lot of people either in Washington or on Wall Street from that background. They didn't have that anxiety, which I think half the country has. And the other thing is that I, um, my uh, grandparents were immigrants. My grandmother from Norway was in an arranged marriage. Her parents tried to arrange a marriage with someone she couldn't stand, and she and her sister jumped on a boat. She was a maid. And so here you have a maid from Norway, didn't speak English, came over, was super smart, became a major domo for some incredibly wealthy New York family. And uh, two generations later, her grandson is working with George Soros and Wall Street. It's kind of improbable. But um, my father was a Presbyterian minister. And what made me good, I asked all the bad questions. I asked all the questions, why this, why that? But it made me good in financial issues because I never accepted the status quo. Uh, never, you know, I was always questioning. But, uh, but he taught me a lot. And he, uh, on his deathbed, or, or after he died, actually, I, at the funeral, I remember... Um, there were a lot of a thousand people there and there were a lot of speeches. And they said uh, that he had this, um, this caring, this feel for the unlovely. And I kept hearing that in this one after another. And that, uh, and it really struck me because I said, you know, that's, that's um, so counter to our culture. And, uh, and, but it, as my wife said, but that's really you, you look like you're, you're can be as aggressive as as any Wall Street guy and and all the rest, but that that sense of caring about the unlovely is the answer to how do we get out of this mess. I don't say you have to do that as a as a far left person or or or, but you have to have a mentality that says I say to go back and says can you really have a country 
where half the country owns stocks and it's been a world-class bonanza and then the other half are just hanging on without that half just feeling bad about themselves and then that eventually turns around into and anger and we don't need that it's not where we ought to be and uh so that that's kind of where i i you know i i, I fell into this and uh you know it's been an interesting experience i do find I can tell you dozens of people who have come to me and had your experience. They said, I watched the film the first time and it was really interesting. And I was thinking that I felt this need to watch it again. And um, some of our own cast members have told me this, who are people in the film. I watched it again. And the second time, there's so much I didn't see the first time because there's a lot coming at you. And, um, but they said that that it was really, really powerful in that sense. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, sometimes these things. The one thing I would say is I, I sent right in the beginning emails to all kinds of people that I thought had interesting experiences. You know, the the guy who I read about who's he had been heir apparent to the white nationalist movement. Mm-hmm. So I sent him an email, and then he I never heard back. I sent him another one. I started calling him, and then. Uh, but I was amazed at the people who called back or sent the word back and said, I'm in. I said, would you be willing to be interviewed a, a, a film about hate, dysfunction, but also empathy and hope? And would you be at 95%? The, the two people I, I heard from who said no, Barack Obama said, uh, Dave, I have my own films I'm making. <laughs> I said, All right. And, and George W. Bush said, I, I don't. I'm okay, so you didn't now. get two presidents. I mean, that's I not a bad. You've got all of these disparate voices coming together. And what I see as a plea to rebuild our country and make yeah. sure that the low-grade civil war that we're now in, because I do think we're in a low-grade war, yeah. uh, doesn't become more exacerbated. David, I'm going to end on this note. You talked about empathy. If we could all find a little bit of empathy for that person on the other side of the Facebook post, on the other side of the social media meme, if we can find a little bit of empathy for just some of them, not everybody, we're not going to be empathetic toward everybody, but if we can find empathy towards some, we can do a lot to keep Americanism and our dream alive. I got to thank you, brother. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back. I love your optimism. I mean, I should have had you on the movie because you're exactly right. All these people are testament. They're an answer to the question, can we change? Can we save the country? Yeah, just listen to them on the movie. They're all, you know, Leon Panetta is saying, absolutely, we can, we can save the country. And, and uh, I think uh, I really appreciate your comments. Well, I appreciate you being here. You started a conversation, and it is up to everybody else to continue and to keep it moving. Thank you so much, David Smith, for being here. The movie is Stars and Strife. It is available on all Stars platforms, Stars with a Z, so you can see the documentary Stars and Strife on Stars with a Z. I highly recommend watching it. It's a beginning to an important conversation that we should have. Thank you so much, David. All right. Uh, Be well. Thanks for being here. Great. Great to be with you. Take care. Bye-bye. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. 
Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody. 